All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28? I'm sure many in this room remember in July of 1969 when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. I remember that. I was three <laughs> times four. But, you know, then President Nixon went on TV and said, this is the greatest day in the history of the world. Man has conquered space. Well, the next day, Billy Graham came out publicly and refuted that statement, saying yesterday was not the greatest day in the history of the world. There have been at least three others that have been greater, the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know, is the single greatest event in the history of the world and the cornerstone of the Christian faith. In fact, it is so foundational to Christianity that anyone who does not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot be a true Christian. Without the resurrection, we would have no Christian faith. In fact, Paul made that very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In fact, why don't you turn there? We talked about this last week, how that the Corinthians had gotten all this in bad teaching. Teaching that said, no, 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 the dead don't rise, from the, people don't rise from the dead. And so they were buying into that. Paul said, look, if, if people don't rise from the dead, Christ is not risen. And if Christ isn't risen, then our preaching is empty. Your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Those who have died believing in Christ have perished. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But I thank God for those next two words. But now, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, the world contains many religions. But all but four are based on philosophical and ethical principles. They don't really need a founder, per se, because their, their religion doesn't depend on a founder, because it's just a system of ethical and moral teachings. Of the four that are based on personalities, only Christianity claims an empty tomb due to the resurrection of its founder. Abraham, well, he died about 1900 B.C., but the Jewish people never have claimed that Abraham rose from the dead. We know that the original accounts of Buddha's life and death never claimed any resurrection from the dead for him. Even Mohammed, when he died on June 8, 632 A.D. in Medina, his tomb is there to this day and visited by thousands of Muslims every year. But neither the Quran nor the Hadith ever claimed that Mohammed rose from the dead. Only the tomb of Jesus is empty because only Jesus Christ is risen. Now, in Matthew 28, starting in verse 21, we read, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. 
He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Now, I'd like you to turn to John 20 because John gives us a little more insight into this narrative, what happened that Sunday morning. John 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as of yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes." Now, skeptics have pointed out that the Gospels seem to contradict themselves as to the events that transpired the day Jesus rose from the dead. First of all, let me set the scene. At the end of Matthew 27, we saw that some of the women that had followed Jesus' ministry were standing afar off watching him being crucified. Matthew tells us they included Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, which would be Salome. Of course, after Jesus died, as we've already studied, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to Pilate and asked that they might receive the body of Christ to give it a proper burial. The problem was that the sun was starting to set. And of course, the Jewish day begins at sundown. The next day was going to be a high Sabbath. They had their weekly Sabbaths every Saturday. But they also had these high Sabbaths. And they coincided with the feast days. Now, Passover was the day Jesus was crucified. On the next day, running for seven days, you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In Leviticus 23, it tells us that it was to start with a Sabbath, a high Sabbath, and end with a high Sabbath. So this next day at sundown would begin a high Sabbath. So they quickly, Joseph and Nicodemus, took the body of Jesus, quickly wrapped the body in for burial, but didn't have enough time to do a proper job before laying it in the tomb, rolling the stone in front of the opening, and then beating it on home so they can get home before the Sabbath started. Well, the women saw where they had buried the body of Jesus, and they purposed that they were going to come back early Sunday morning, the day after the Sabbath, to properly finish preparing his body for burial. And so now we see them coming early, the first day of the week, that would be Sunday morning, bringing the sweet spices that they would need to finish the work of preparing Jesus' body that Nicodemus and Joseph had begun. The Gospels tell us they were coming to the tomb early that morning. The word early is a Greek word that means the fourth watch of the night. See, the Romans had divided, and it was pretty much for the soldiers' sake, because they did shifts and, and guarded according to watches. But the Romans had divided the night into four watches. 6 to 9 p.m. was the first watch, 9 to 12, midnight, second watch, midnight to 3, the third watch. So the fourth watch of the night was between 3 and 6 a.m. These women 
left their homes early to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial. Now, one of the things that skeptics also point out is the seeming discrepancies in the Gospels as to what women came to the tomb that morning and when. Matthew tells us that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. This is probably a reference to Mary, the mother of James and Joses, whom he mentions in chapter 27, verse 56. Now, Mark mentions those two gals, but also adds that Salome, who was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, she was also with the ladies. Now, in John's gospel, he only mentions Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb. And he says it was still dark when she got to the tomb. However, Mark tells us that when the women got to the tomb, the sun had already risen. So what about all this? How are we to reconcile these apparent contradictions? Underline the word apparent. Let me tell you what I think happened that morning. And we're assuming the women all started out from the same point. They may not have. They might, they might have been coming to the tomb from different locations, wherever they lived around the city. Okay, But let's just say for the sake of argument, they rendezvoused somewhere and began to make their way to the tomb. We know it was very early, sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. And I believe before the sun had actually risen, they left for the tomb. Mark tells us that the main thing they were worried about was who was going to move the stone from the mouth of the tomb so that they could get in. I mean, that stone that the women were worried about was no small problem. As we talked about last week, it weighed between three and 4,000 pounds. I mean, how in the world were they ever going to move that stone back up the channel where it sat so they could properly finish preparing Jesus' body for burial? They were probably worried about that for the three days that he was in the tomb, but especially that Sunday morning as they were making their way to the tomb. Mark tells us it was a topic of conversation. As you can imagine, how are we going to move the stone? Who's going to move the stone for us? All right. The interesting thing about it is that when they finally got to the tomb, the problem they were so worried about, well, God had already gone before them and taken care of. Because Matthew tells us that God sent an angel to move the stone. Okay? It's interesting. Now, as I've thought about this, I've thought of how many times I was worried about something that I knew was coming down the road, you know? And boy, you know, how was I going to pay for that? Or what, how was I going to work that out? Or whatever it was, you know, you know, things coming down the road. You get worried about it. And how are we going to do that? How are we going to, whatever. Only to finally get to that point and God had gone before me and taken care of it. I just heard a story. And I was talking to another pastor who told me a story. Of course, a true story. All my stories are true, by the way. <laughs> just, but I, I feel like I have to say that. Okay. I, I just heard a story. A, a pastor was telling me about another pastor who got sick and had to go into the hospital. You know, And he didn't have the money to pay for this. He knew there was a big bill coming, you know. So when he got released, he called the next day just to find out what he owed them. And he told them his name, and they looked up his account and said, Sir, we show that you owe nothing. And he's like, wait a minute, I just was discharged. I mean, I, I got all your money for my state. They said, well, we show that you've dis been discharged, but we don't see any record of it. Oh, you owe us any money. Now, I don't know what happened. Somebody stepped in and paid his bill unbeknownst to him, or the Lord just wiped it off the computer. I, I'm all for that. Okay, uh, But you know what? It, it just tells us one more time that our God is going before us. You know, we need to be careful because it's easy to get worried about everything. 
You know, Psalm 37, verse 7 says, don't fret. Don't worry. It only causes harm. That is so true. You know, our English word worry comes from a German word that literally means to strangle or to choke. And that's really what worry does. It's kind of a mo uh, emotional and mental strangulation. But I'll tell you what it does do. Worry and stress causes a lot of physical problems. I don't know if we realize how many physical problems are caused by worry and the stress that comes from worry. These women were doing God's work. They, in their minds, were getting the body of Jesus prepared for burial. That was doing the Lord's work. If God is sending you to do a task, don't you think he's going to provide the means? He's going to go before you. He's going to take care of it. I told you guys that uh, four years ago, we were given, not us personally, but, but a, a group of pastors in the Midwest, I'm on the board, uh, a group of radio stations that had been purchased over the course of 10 years. And, you know, the, the pastor who had purchased these stations was getting old, didn't want to deal with them anymore, was going to just sell them. We stepped in and said, look, we'd like to keep them going for the Lord. And so we worked out a deal. We had no money. And none of us, none of our churches are very big. We had no money to put down on these stations. But around this time, a gentleman was coming to the church and said to me, I got to talk to you. I said, okay. He goes, you know, he was a, a doctor. He said, you know, before I got saved, I was kind of a playboy. And well, during that time, I bought a very expensive car. He says, and now I don't even drive because I'm just, it's too flashy. He says, and I, the Lord has spoken to me, and he wants me to sell it and give you the money for the radio. And I was like, okay, uh, what are we talking about? He said, well, it's over $100,000. Okay, well, that's a lot of money. Uh, you better pray make sure God's really telling you to do this. And he prayed, and he, he gave us the check. And so we offered that check as a down payment for the radio stations. And uh, the devil did not want these stations used for the Lord. He came against us. I can't tell you what happened. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Equipment started going down. I mean, we, you know, people weren't paying. Christians weren't paying their bills. We were in the hole. We kept praying. Every day was a step of faith. And God just slowly but surely pulled us out of the pit. And today those stations are doing very well. The word of God is being broadcast. Look, there are all kinds of David and Goliath stories in the body of Christ. You might be living one right now. I don't know. You might be facing a giant of a problem. Maybe it's right in front of you, or maybe you know it's coming down the road. But you know what? It's easy to get our eyes on the problem and get our eyes off of God. Our responsibility is to keep our eyes on the Lord and to thank him even before you see the answer to the prayer or the problem, because that's faith. It honors God when we thank him for what he is going to do based on his promises to take care of us and we praise and thank him before we ever see the fulfillment because we trust our god and i believe that demonstrates a maturity and a confidence in god that you have this strong relationship i don't know how he's going to do it but i know he's going to do it so the women were rightly worried that morning as they made their way to the tomb these three or four or five gals we don't know how many were with them but they started up for the tomb before the sun came up. And it seems that Mary Magdalene, whom the Lord had cast seven demons out of, she loved Jesus. There are people who love Jesus, and there are people who love Jesus. Mary loved Jesus. And I think in her eagerness to get to the tomb to honor him by preparing his body for burial, 
Uh, I believe she runs ahead of the other girls. Maybe they were dawdling. Maybe they were, you know, and she wanted to get there. So I think Mary went on up ahead, and she got to the tomb while it was still dark. And when she got there, she saw the stone had been removed from the door. And understandably, she concluded that somebody, grave robbers no doubt, had broken into the tomb and had stolen the body of her Lord. What she and the other women didn't know, as I just said, was that God caused an earthquake to happen earlier and an angel to appear who moved the stone. And the, the guards fainted, and this angel moved this stone. Now, as I said, John's gospel gives us some deeper insight, I think, into what happened. Because in John's gospel, when it says the stone was taken away, he used the Greek verb iro, okay, iro. And in that context, that verb means to pick up and carry. It wasn't that the stone had simply been rolled up the channel back to its starting point. John is describing a situation where the stone had been picked up, okay, carried a short distance, and then put down in a place near the tomb, but not where you'd expect it to be if somebody had simply rolled it back up the channel because they wanted to get into the tomb. You know, years ago, an English trial lawyer and critic of Christianity named Frank Morrison. Now, it's interesting, every time these intellectuals set out to disprove Christianity, they always wanted to get saved. Josh McDowell and many others over the course of the years, okay, uh, thinking that we Christians are so stupid, okay? Christianity is, you have to be just a, a numbskull to believe in Christianity, you know? I'm going to study the evidence. I'm going to prove Christianity is not even true. And they wanted to get saved because the evidence points to everything, okay? But, but Morrison thought, I'm going to disprove Christianity. He started out to write a book disproving the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But after careful study, he was compelled by the evidence to become a Christian. He wound up writing a book in defense of the resurrection entitled, Who Moved the Stone? Think about it. Who moved that stone? If it wasn't moved by God through an angel, who moved it and why was it moved? And Morrison, being a trial lawyer, understood how evidence works, okay? He was a man who was trained in looking at evidence and coming to conclusions based on the evidence. And he looked at the situation carefully, historically, and said, look, if it wasn't, if it was another way than what the Bible describes it, then who moved that stone and why did they move it? What did they have to gain? Well, he became a Christian because he recognized that nobody had anything to gain by moving that stone. It had to be as God had said. Now, why was the stone moved? To let Jesus out? No, to let the disciples in. Okay? I mean, the women, and later on then the eleven. But once again, when Mary saw that the stone had been removed from the opening of the tomb, the door of the tomb, she concluded that somebody, probably grave robbers, had broken into the tomb and stolen the body of Jesus. Now what she does is, as soon as she looks at the scene and sees that the stone is gone and looks inside sees the body of Jesus is gone, she takes off to tell Peter and John. They're no doubt in town. Okay, they lived up in the galley. That's where they lived. But they were in town because that's where Jesus was when he was arrested and crucified. They stayed in town. She no doubt knew where they, she knew where they were staying. A lot of, everyone knew where the, the apostles were staying. So she knew where to go. She runs off to tell Peter and John what's going on. And in John 20, verse 2, she says, and I'm quoting, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So as soon as Peter and John hear this, they take off for the tomb because they want to see what's going on. Now, 
while Mary had gone, okay, she's now on her way to tell Peter and John the, the news. Well, by the time she leaves, now the other women arrive at the tomb. I believe by this time the sun has risen, okay? And that's why it's not inconsistent to say when the women got to the tomb, it doesn't mean all the women, it just means that the bulk of the girls, when they got to the tomb, the sun had already uh, risen. They also see the stone has been moved. And so looking into the tomb, they see an angel in shining apparel. They're terrified, okay, as you can imagine. Now, Luke tells us there were two angels. You know what, guys? The tomb that Sunday morning was the focal point of all of the universe. I think there were angels appearing and disappearing all over the area. Now, the other gospel has just mentioned the angel that spoke. But Luke tells us there were at least two, okay? And we read in Matthew 28, verse 5, Then the angel, the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. <laughs> they were scared to death still, but wow, we're excited. We're, we're afraid, but we're excited. Uh, and they ran to bring the disciples' word. Now, the girls go. They're gone. Here comes John. Okay, Peter and John came immediately after Mary Magdalene told them, hey, the tomb is empty. Somebody's taking the body of the Lord. Well, they take off. John was the younger of the two, so he outruns Peter. John gets to the tomb first, okay? We read in John chapter 20, verse 4. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter. Now, get John's way of describing himself. Outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, uh, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. We'll talk about, more, about that more in a moment. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, uh, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. So you get the picture. John, being the younger of the two, outruns Peter, gets to the tomb first. He cautiously, though, stays outside looking in. Okay? Don't forget now, don't forget, it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in particular, it was also the Feast of first fruits, because in Leviticus 23, it says the Passover takes place in the 14th of Nisan, starting in the 15th, running for seven days, Feast of Unleavened Bread. You'll have a Sunday somewhere in that week. That Sunday became the Feast of first fruits. So they're in a very important feast week of the Jewish religious calendar. Well, John's Jewish upbringing kicks in. He knows that during the feast days especially, you don't want to touch anything that's going to defile you and keep you from being able to celebrate these feasts. And entering into a tomb, that qualifies as defiling you. So John stays outside the tomb. He's looking in, okay. Um, what does he see? Well, he sees the grave clothes that had, that had once held the body of Jesus lying by themselves undisturbed but empty. The word saw there in verse 5 is the Greek word blepo, and it means to glance at. So initially, John gave the empty tomb a quick glance. It's the same Greek word used of Mary Magdalene in John 20, verse 1, 
Uh, Mary also gave a quick glance at the scene. She didn't study it, really. Just, the stone's gone. Look inside, the body's gone. Okay, she takes off. Tell Peter and John. They came back. John first stays outside the tomb. He takes a glance at the situation. So initially, both Mary and John gave the scene a quick glance. Well, a few minutes later, Peter arrived. Verse 6 of John 20. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw, another Greek word, he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. So John's outside, because, you know, I don't want to defile myself. This is a tomb. Peter comes and goes right in, okay? That's Peter, okay? Just impetuous, he doesn't care. Just goes right in, okay? Verse 6 says, he also saw. Different Greek word, theoreo, theoreo, which means to look carefully, to study and contemplate what you're looking at. So Peter studies the scene. What was Peter looking at so intently? What did he see in that tomb? Well, he saw the linen cloths lying there empty, but he noticed that they were lying there like an empty cocoon, still retaining the shape of Jesus' body. That was unusual, to say the least. He knew this was not the work of grave robbers, as Mary had implied. Because if grave robbers, if grave robbers would have just taken the body, grave clothes and all, right? But even though Peter carefully examined the scene, he still didn't understand that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, that's kind of a mystery. Because on at least three, maybe four occasions, Jesus, in the last few months of his life, had told his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem, where he would be given over to the hands of wicked men, be crucified, but on the third day would rise again. I'm shocked that even now, that morning, where Jesus, and obviously as Peter looked at the scene, it was obvious that, well, Jesus was gone, of course, but he had told them he was going to rise from the dead. Why didn't Peter go, oh yeah, that's right. (laughs) He told us he was going to rise. Why was Peter mystified? Well, again, I have to believe it goes to Peter's agenda. He wasn't the only one that had an agenda. A lot of the disciples, if not all the disciples, followed him, followed Jesus, because they believed him to be the Messiah who was going to set up the kingdom. And once he set up the kingdom, boy, they were all going to be prime ministers, you know, live in the lap of luxury, you know, wear the finest clothes, live in the finest houses, have all kinds of power and money and so on. That was their dream. That was their goal. And when Jesus began to talk about his crucifixion, their brains shut off. Every time he said, look, guys, soon I'm going to be handed over to wicked men and be crucified, click, their brains just shut off. They never heard, and on the third day rise again. Because, Lord, you can't be killed. If you're killed, how am I going to be a prime minister? So they just didn't buy that, okay? So they, they really, I believe, because of their own selfish agenda, did not hear the Lord in what he was saying. The only one who appears that didn't have a selfish agenda was Mary of Bethany who sat at Jesus' feet often to hear him teach. She was the only one who knew he was going to die and anointed him for burial. So Peter's there, and he goes in. He's looking around, studying the scene. He doesn't get it. It's not computing. Well, John sees Peter going. He says, well, Peter's going to go out. I guess I'll go in. So John enters the tomb to get a closer look. Verse 8. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. The Greek word now used of John seeing or John saw is ido. Ido, which means to see and understand, to perceive with intelligent comprehension. See, now John, the light comes on. 
John gets it. John sees, understands, he believes. He believes in the resurrection. See, John understood that the only way those linen cloths could be left in that condition, like an empty cocoon, would be if Jesus, listen, passed right through them when he rose from the dead. See, that's what made the scene, the whole scene was perplexing. Stone wasn't just rolled out of the way, it was picked up and carried by somebody and stuck over in a place that was odd. Okay, who did that? You look inside and you see the grave clothes still kind of keeping the shape of Jesus' body, but he was, his body wasn't in, in the clothes. And look, if Jesus had not really died in that cross as some proposed, but simply had passed out from loss of blood, and when he was put into the tomb, the cool air revived him, as some believe, well, if he, if he would have revived because he wasn't really dead, how he got those grave clothes off, I have no idea. But let's just say for the sake of argument, he did wiggle out of them. He would have unwrapped himself and thrown it in a big heap off to the side, right? But that's not what Peter and John saw. Again, they saw the grave clothes undisturbed almost, but just limp as if the body of Jesus was still inside them, but it was gone. You know, I think that the Holy Spirit is holding up Mary, John, and Peter, and how each of them looked, looked at the empty tomb that day as an example of the different ways a lot of people look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First of all, Mary. Again, when she got to the tomb that morning, she saw the stone had been rolled away. Again, the Greek word for saw is blepo, which means to see something superficially without necessarily comprehending what you're looking at. You know, there's a lot of people who are confused about the resurrection. Uh, they know what we believe. They know Christianity teaches an empty tomb, but for the life of them, they don't understand really what's, what went on. Okay, I mean, maybe, you know... They're secular people totally. And around Easter time, because of course our country is still populated by people of the Christian faith. And so, of course, you know, there's television programs and there's commercials and there's billboards and there's cards and things all talking about the resurrection. And so they take a quick, a quick glance at it. I mean, they can't, you know, ignore it, but they really don't give it a, a good hard look. Uh, just a quick glance. Or maybe even they grew up in church, or at least went to church periodically. Uh, Sunday school, um, vacation Bible school, maybe Awanas. And they were taught about the resurrection, but have never given it more than a passing glance. And now that they've gotten older, of course, they've gotten busier. The focus of their life is work and making money and taking the kids to soccer and baseball and working in the house and planning vacations and so on. And so they just don't have the time they believe to really or the desire oftentimes to really take a hard, serious look at spiritual things like the resurrection. And if you were to ask them, well, what did happen 2,000 years ago, that first resurrection Sunday morning, they'll tell you they really don't know. Kind of like Mary, who really didn't know what to think. She didn't know what had happened. And then we have Peter. Now, even though Peter studied the situation carefully, he didn't comprehend what happened either. And so he was confused. And there are those, if you think about it, who study the Christian faith, study Christian doctrine like the resurrection, and they still don't know what happened. They know the tomb was empty, but for whatever reason, they refuse to believe the obvious conclusion that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so they come up with all kinds of explanations, ridiculous explanations, as to why the tomb was empty. They can't deny the tomb was empty. That's historical fact. 
but they are not willing to just believe that Jesus rose, as the Bible says. Peter didn't believe, even though Jesus told him he was going to rise from the dead. So these folks don't really believe, and so they have to come up with explanations as to why the tomb was empty, but Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We'll talk about that next time in a message I've entitled The Proof of the Resurrection. And then we have John, who initially saw the evidence of the resurrection superficially, blepo, and didn't comprehend at first, but then gave a closer look. Remember then after Peter went in, he went into the tomb, and he gave a closer look at the situation and came to understand and believe. Look, coming to believe in Jesus is often a process that the Holy Spirit leads a person in. It's a process. At first, people witness to you about the Lord and maybe things like the resurrection. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, yeah, I don't, I don't understand it. But as time goes on, and these folks, they want to know more. They, they want to dig a little deeper. And so they maybe come to church or get a Bible, start reading it, talk to a Christian friend or a co-worker. And as they're gathering information, initially not really comprehending, but at one point the light goes on, they understand. They put their faith in a risen Savior and become Christians. Now the question this morning is, where are you along the process? See, that's the big thing, okay? The fact that you're in church today, that says a lot. I mean, that's a, you're a lot better off, I believe, than the person who maybe is in the bar right now, okay, who is a biker, we'll say, you know, and, uh, you know, watching the games. There, there's a game, always oh, a game on. So there's some, some game somewhere they're watching, right? So you're better than that because you're here. At least you have a desire to know more. Here's the danger. The devil can deceive you into thinking because you are in church, that you're right with God. There's a lot of people who are religious unbelievers. Religious unbelievers. They come to church, and they think that because they do go to church, that's all they need to do. They're right with God. But then they go out from church, and all week long they're pretty much living the way they want to live. There, there are all kinds of degrees of rebels. Okay, There are those, again, the leather... Jacket wearing, you know, tattoo covered, beard drinking, uh, fight with you at the drop of a hat, biker types. They're bigger rebels than maybe anyone in this room. The problem is we think sometimes that because we're not like them, we're right with God because we're decent people and go to church. And who the Holy Spirit is bringing you through this process. Look, at church is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. And that end is to get you into a relationship with Jesus Christ that once you enter in, you keep growing in for the rest of your life. That's what church is all about. It's not to make you happy. It's to make you holy. It's not to tell you what you want to hear. It's to tell you what you need to hear. Okay? My job isn't to sanctify Dr. Phil to solve your problems and make you happy. My job is to love you enough to tell you the truth. And the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's my job. Because I want you to know that there are so many who are deceived today. Jesus talked about them in, in Matthew 7, who will stand before him. They were churchgoers all their lives. And someday they're going to stand before him. He said, I'm going to say to them, I never knew you depart from me. You know what they're going to say? But Lord, we were in church. We worked in the soup kitchen. 
We did all kinds of wonderful things in your We even cast out demons. And he will say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Going to church does not make anyone a Christian. In fact, the true church of Jesus Christ is not a place you can join. It's something you have to be born into. The body of Christ is something you have to be, you can't join. You've got to be born into it by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And when you do, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and he births in you a new nature. It's the nature of God. And at that point, you are connected to God in a way that I don't care how much church you've done all your life. This is so much different than that. It's a relationship as opposed to just religion. So I just want to encourage you guys. The resurrection is the greatest event in the history of the world because it allows sinners such as we to have our sins forgiven and to conquer death so we can live with our Lord someday for all eternity. But again, it's a process. Don't let the process end. It's not the process that's important. It's the end result. Receiving Christ as your living Lord and Savior. And I pray that everyone in this room has done that or will do that before the day is out. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Lord, we are all sinners saved by grace. And Lord, as you said, the soul that sins shall surely die. Yes, physically, but eternally as well. And yet, Lord, you so love the world that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Jesus would not have to perish in hell forever, but would have everlasting life. Everlasting life made possible because our Savior stepped from that tomb alive, having risen from the dead. And Lord, we just pray that in this very room, first of all, you will touch the hearts of all who are here, that nobody would deceive themselves into thinking they're saved if they're really not. And those, Lord, who are here who don't want to be here, they don't plan on coming back here, uh, today it's just a glance. I pray you, Lord, work in their heart where it becomes a holy obsession where they can't stay away from your word. They can't stay away from your people because your spirit has got a hold of their hearts and is bringing them to a point of decision and commitment to Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.